0: Musician Mindset is brought to you by possiblechops.com, a library of expert-level drumming vocabulary lessons. To receive your first month of pro membership for free, visit possiblechops.com/musicianmindset. Hey Jason. Yes, Dave. What did the Buddhist say to the hot dog vendor? <laughs> I don't know. Make me one with everything. <laughs> <laughs> Musician Mindset is a conversation series that extracts the performance and preparation thought process from world-class musicians, leaving you with wisdom and exercises
1: to level up your musical journey.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) We're winning. We're winning already. Well, we have a very special treat for our guests today. Because for the next 90 minutes, Jason and I are going to analyze side one of Led Zeppelin 4. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, Uh, come on. We have a very special treat today. Um, We have with us today Eric Calver. Eric was raised by a family of magicians. You heard that right. Not musicians, magicians. Eric already had stage, TV, and radio experience by age five. At age 11, the discovery of the Beatles and the movie That Thing You Do inspired him to become a drummer. Eric wears multiple hats in the industry. He's a music supervisor at Activision Blizzard, working on games such as Call of Duty, Overwatch, and Guitar Hero. He was previously on an associate producer at Music and Strategy, where he music supervised for brands such as Netflix, Coach, Miller Lite, Ford, and Nest. He is a published arranger through Alfred Music Publishing, having done percussion ensemble arrangements of Star Wars medleys. Yes. He has written music for CBS's The Talk and the podcast Daddy Issues. As well as orchestrated on movies such as fast five with brian tyler and skyline with matthew Margison. the movie he recently scored the ballad of whistler's creek for the 2019 48-hour film project is currently nominated for the best of los angeles screenings uh, which will be screened at the tcl chinese theater he's a regularly gigging drummer playing for multiple groups shows and artists that perform all around the los angeles area such as todd glass Wayne Brady, Roger Bart, Barrett Foa, Carly Craig, Leah Thompson, and many more. You can regularly see Eric playing drums for Baby Wants Candy at Upright Citizens Brigade, weddings and corporate events with Business Time Entertainment, live band karaoke with the Moon Units, indie rock with the artist Spielberg, and on the Netflix comedy special Todd Glass, Act Happy. And with that, that's all we have time for today. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> hey guys, yeah, thank we'll you see you guys. see
2: you so much. Uh, Eric,
0: awesome, man. That's an impressive
1: uh, list right there.
0: And
2: thanks, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for yeah, having excited me. excited to have you.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I got a lot of questions based on, on this <laughs> bio here. But I'm let's... sure it has
2: nothing to do with magic, right? We're it nothing... actually doesn't. No, okay. no none, none... <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of what was that actress from, uh, back to the future? Was that Leah Thompson? Leah Thompson. Is that the actual actress from back? That's the actress. You see that right there is the best cred of your entire (laughs) bio. Uh,
2: loving that. I I actually, uh, co-wrote a back to the future musical a few years ago. Uh, it was a whole like, like a 90 minute musical taking movies one, two, and three. And it was just like a nonstop musical version. Wow. The entire trilogy. Okay. We can go yeah. through that <laughs> yeah. whole thing,
1: Which, but no, we'll stay focused. <laughs> Take our people back to the beginning of your musical journey. Like when, when was the first time that you performed?
2: Well, so the first time I performed as a musician yeah. was when okay. I was 11, when I okay. was in sixth grade in the middle school band. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my first real music experience because I grew up with magic the whole time when I was young until 11, just growing up on stage performing with my dad and then as you said in my really short bio (laughs) that uh, I was into the Beatles and that thing you do so I just like I gravitated towards Ringo and the drums and thought that was really cool and so in the middle of like musical theater like community theater stuff I was doing in the summer uh, before sixth grade I said to my parents that I want to try drum lessons I think it would be cool because my dad tried to teach me piano when I was younger but I wasn't like I I wish I stuck with it longer but I wasn't fully into it. Mm. So by the time I got to middle school I was in the concert band and then I said that I was I could play drums and so I was in the jazz band so my first performance was like a December holiday concert playing concert snare drum and and playing kit for the jazz band. But you had experience on
1: stage before?
2: Yeah, just just literally being on stage performing. With my dad, right, doing like his assistant, like a magic assistant. What's well, this interesting
1: um, side note here that you're not the first guest that has had previous experience before music being on stage. We've had several guests who like grew up with their their parents performing, yeah, and, and they're on stage as well. So uh, you've had no
2: nerves, basically, right? Not. Not really. I mean, you know, Dave, you can probably relate to this or Jason, you can too. When you have the instrument that you are comfortable with, that is your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You know, anything else in front of you shouldn't scare you because you're shielded by the thing that you know Mm -hmm. super well. So I was starting to get pretty comfortable with the drums and I was that young, just like I had been comfortable with just being in front of people Mm -hmm. at such a young age. So Mm -hmm. it... it, for me, it was natural to be on stage. It wasn't a a nerves thing. And I was used to practicing with my parents routines or, you know, patter that we had to say. So it was kind of a similar thing to me, learning music and reading sheet music. It wasn't so nerve wracking as it could be for other people.
1: Right. You understood that through preparation, you would overcome any kind of anxiety of performing.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, there was still like a little bit of nervousness from excitement. Sure, of course. But, yeah, right, right. you know, overall, I was pretty comfortable with that.
0: You're kind of hinting at this already, but what uh, were any parallels or differences of your experience first starting out doing magic versus performing with music?
2: Um, For me, it was a little bit easier in my mind with the music mm-hmm. over the magic. Because with magic, you are acting. You're playing right. the part of a magician, and you're convincing everyone, like, look at me. I am a magician that does these illusions and we're all going to believe this together. And so it, right. it is straight up acting. With music, I'm not just to say I'm reading off a sheet of paper with sheet music, but like I'm performing what is already right there for me or something I've memorized. And you're ideally putting forth your honest self as opposed to
0: acting like something.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and for me, that was a lot easier because yeah. I I think by that age, I was more... A musician in my mind by age 11 or 12 than a mm. magician and seeing something where, you know, no offense to what I grew up with. Like that was my family's thing. Magic was their thing. And I grew up with like, Oh, your dad's a magician. Uh, you do magic. And then when I discovered the drums, it was more like, Oh, you're the drummer kid. Like, you're the, you're the one You had an identity
1: it. with it. yeah, Yeah. Exactly. Your own identity. So
2: yeah. for me, that was more exciting because it was something different than what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So that's when the confidence came and, you know, really owning the performing.
1: With what, the drums. What was it about uh, about Ringo or the Beatles or like, like why were you attracted to the drums? You ever think about that?
2: I have thought about that. And I think what it was is that, you know, I grew up with magicians for parents. It's not a normal thing that everyone in my class could say like, oh, yeah, my parents are also performers. And I gravitated towards the weird and the odd. And not to say that drums are weird and odd, but like I saw all these guitars. I was like, cool, that's fine. But then I saw the drums and it just seemed so unique to me the way he was physically, you know, all over the place and his hair was moving around. And it just, that attracted me like something that was unique. Hmm. So that's, I think that's what pulled me towards it. And then I think what doubled on that was seeing that thing you do and watching Guy Patterson, the drummer in that, mm-hmm. pretty much being the heart of the band. And he didn't realize as he went into the band that he was about to become like the main person. Because there's that quote, at the end of the movie with Tom Hanks, where they say, like, Jimmy's the talent, uh, you know, Lenny's the the jokester, but you're the smart one. Mm-hmm. And that always kind of stuck with me of, like, the choices that he was making in the movie mm-hmm. of, like, and we'll probably get to this later, but the idea of improvisation with yes and. Oh like, yeah. yeah. You know yeah. he was the yes and guy. Yeah. When Tom Hanks said, "Hey, you got to play this, you know, stupid part in a cheesy movie yeah. as the drummer," he was like, "Cool, yeah. that sounds like a lot of fun." And Jimmy was like, "This doesn't represent my art. This is, you know, making fun of us." And and Guy was just along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And so just to see him as like the guy who always said yes to everything. You know, within reason, Mm -hmm. you know, and that just kind of confirmed, like, okay, I think this is what I want to do. Like, the drums look really cool. Yeah. So I think, you know, no one's ever asked me that, but I think that's what it was. Mm. You were able to psychoanalyze all of this at at like ten years old. (laughs) No, (laughs) I don't don't think so. I (laughs) think just (laughs) now I did. (laughs) I was like, maybe that's the magic trick that (laughs) parents taught you. Like, please (laughs) tell me that trick. Yeah. (laughs) I, I don't know. I think I think I, in short, I was attracted to the different. And yeah. that's, that was appealing to me, something yeah. that wasn't normal. Like a lot of people were playing clarinet or flute mm-hmm. trumpet or something. And I was like, I'm going straight to the drums. Cause that seems unique. Cool. In my head. It's that you, you were naturally drawn to it, but you also didn't have an
0: aversion to the fact that other people weren't doing it. You felt confident to just go yeah. for it and be, be different. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome. I want to get into a lot of the music supervisor stuff, but since you did just bring it up, I would actually love to talk about the yes and concept. And when you're talking about improv, in that context, you're talking about comedy improv, Mm -hmm. not music improv. So the only other person... A mix of both, actually. Or both, yeah, sure. The only other person I've heard talk about the yes and concept is Stephen Colbert. Mm -hmm. And I know that he has a really uh, heavy-duty training in comedy improv. And I would love to hear your take on it. I mean, my understanding of it is when you're doing an improv scene whatever the person previously says to you, you go with it. You never say no or you never change it. You go, yes, and also this and blah, blah, right? Is that essentially? Yeah,
2: that's so, it. Yeah, Stephen Colbert came from Second City, yeah. which is one of, one of the first improv comedy uh, companies that, mm-hmm. that practiced that. Tina Fey, Steve Carell, yeah. Colbert, all these people studied this art. And I had always been a fan of comedy growing up. Stand-ups, Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And when I came out here started to meet more and more friends involved in the comedy world and I kind of learned that I was yes handing in my own life mm. where so I met this guy uh, Dan Wessels who's a piano player mm-hmm. and composer who was working for a musical comedy company called 30 minute musicals and I just was asked to sub in uh, I was recommended from another comedy uh, company and so I met him, and within a day, we like, became best friends instantly. Like We just had so many things in common. Cool. And he said, hey, I know we just met, <laughs> but I need to write a musical about Miley Cyrus within the next month. And this was December. Do you want to help me co-write that and you write drums for it? And I said, sure. Like I yes it. I said, yeah, yeah. yeah let's cool. do it. Cool. We wrote a musical, Second City Hollywood, uh, put it up, and it ran for an entire year. And then, from that, he told me about this new uh, not new, but there was a a group of this company opening up in l a called Baby Wants Candy, mm-hmm. which is a musical improv company that makes up an entire musical in sixty minutes. Wow. so we have six like like five to six improvisers, myself on drums, and Dan on piano. And so what that entails is a lot of yes anding so. Mm-hmm you know, we, we do it just like a musical. We do an opening number, we do ballads, we do the, I want songs, the songs where lyrics are about like what the main characters pursuing during Mm -hmm. the story. And then we do like a closing number and this is, there's zero rehearsal. There is no communication about, we're about to do a love song. We're about to do this. You just go with it. Wow. And so it's, it's amazing. It's, When I bring musicians to see it, it terrifies them because they're watching the whole show going like, oh God, I hope they land that. Yeah, waiting
0: to see what's going to go wrong. What's going to happen? Like, how
2: are they going to get to that chord? How are the singers going to know that they're doing a key change or they're doing this or that? And uh, I've just grown to love it because it's challenging Yeah, and it opens up my brain even more and Mm -hmm. I get to work with a player who he and I can communicate without communicating. Mm-hmm. Like we both have similar tastes in music that we know we're going to end with a cha-cha-cha right. at the end <laughs> or we're just going to do you know, a, a certain jazz ending or whatnot. Yeah. And so the idea of yes and is, like you were saying, someone presents an idea and you take that idea and you agree to it, but you add on to that. So right. it causes more inspiration from other people. So you're starting with a simple concept at the beginning, maybe the title of the musical. We've done one like Kanye West Side Story. (laughs) And so the opening number could be anything. It could be the main characters of the show. It could just be like an ensemble piece that will eventually lead into the main characters. But all of our improvisers are coming up with the story in their heads and kind of conversing when they get off stage and changing scenes. And it's... One of the most amazing improvisational scenes I've ever been a part of.
1: What is the biggest lesson that you've learned from the actors?
2: The biggest lesson I've learned is you it, just the concept of yes anding applies to everything mm-hmm. in life. If someone presents an idea that maybe isn't working, you need to agree with it and just turn it into something that can be be agreed upon by everyone. So like there's a term that Dan and I like to say, like if some of the improvisers are just insane with their ideas, it's like they throw a grenade at the mm-hmm. stage. So there may be like three improvisers coming up with an idea and it's fully established. And then someone throws in this crazy grenade of a loophole that just changes the entire story and everyone has to go with it, Yeah. which wow. kind of applies to what we do. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, I've had a gig where I was the MD, and we were playing outside in Santa Barbara. Uh, there was some security around uh, for the wedding, but a homeless woman just came right on stage, mm-hmm. and we're doing "I Want to Dance with Somebody." And this woman is not really causing any harm, but she's standing next to our lead singer, dancing next to she her. She wanted to dance with somebody. She wanted to dance with somebody. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and. Here I am in the back yeah. playing drums, going through every single scenario of what could happen. Yeah. She's going to steal something. She's going to knock something over. She's mm. got a weapon, this and that. Yeah. And all of us had to just play as if nothing was happening. And there's a security guard that comes up, is trying to escort her off. She shoves him. There's all this back and forth. And we are just like, nothing has changed. And then they get off stage and we keep going. That, that was the grenade that was thrown at mm-hmm. us that we just have to keep going no matter what's coming our way. Right. And, and that's what's happening with the improv. With whatever concept is coming our way, well, that's it. We all have to agree. And it kind of applies to life as well. Yep. Like it's easier with everyone to yes and and kind of, you know, easier said than done but to get along with everyone and to accept other people's ideas but then add on to it. You can counter it. You don't necessarily negate it but you can kind of you know discuss like oh i see you're going this way but why don't we go this way as well
0: yeah okay cool
2: maybe not or maybe let's pull it this way instead so it's definitely a learning experience that i you know it's hard to describe yeah improvising a musical it like some musicians say to me like well how did you do that how did you learn to do that like i don't I listen to music like that's just it. I grew yeah. up on musical theater before mm-hmm. any type of pop music or rock music. So well,
1: it's, I think it's, it's more of a mentality. It's, it, it's an open mindset mentality. Have you was that how you were raised as a, as a child? It's like to just adapt to a situation and, and, and be OK with trying things in the moment.
2: That came from the magic experience of like watching my parents deal with, let's say, hecklers, for example or kids that acted out, or tricks that went wrong. Like, I learned how to adapt from them, of just mm. seeing them all my life growing up. And and it really helped me. And there was one time, I haven't talked about this very much uh, in a while, but there was one time where I was in this talent show uh, in middle school. I was like 12 or 13 years old. And I was doing the magic act by myself. And it was the first time where my parents weren't with me. I was doing the magic all by myself. I had no backup, and I did this trick uh, with a banana, and it had to do with some playback where there was this voice instructing me on how to, like, you know, make a banana disappear or something like that. And so I already had done it. The first we had three nights. I did the first night fine. Second night was fine. Third night, my parents weren't there, and I do the trick. And the voiceover says, "Okay, take out the banana from the box." And I'm on stage. And I look in the box, and there's no banana, and that is what I need for the trick. And this was the first time I had to actually improvise what to do. Hmm. And as a 13 year old, I don't know how I did this, but I I announced, "I'm so sorry, but I cannot continue the trick because I'm missing something." But thank you so much for having me. And I got off stage. And like as a 13 year old, like who does like I don't know. That's kind of hard to just say like hey, we need to pause because I cannot continue entertaining you at this moment. Let me, uh, you know, thank you so much for having me. Get off stage. I'm a 13-year-old who just like cries, just like, oh my God, where's the banana? I don't see it. And there happened to be a gym teacher walking by eating a banana. (laughs) And I thought (laughs) he stole my banana. He didn't. I found it. (laughs) And then the stage manager said, oh, let's get you back in for the second act of the trick. And they got me on. And that was the first time I ever had to improvise uh, a mistake or an adjustment and so I think from that moving forward I learned how to deal with mistakes or how to recover fast and it really helped with uh, you know the improvising because that's the other thing too when you improvise a musical you can't take anything back you can't change it there's no do over kind of like when we do gigs Yeah. you know but with us we're making a story and if it goes in that direction we may not like where it's going but that's where it's going yeah and we just have to follow. Wow, Wow. that's amazing, man. So I mean, (laughs) that's so good.
0: That banana thing, I mean, that's, you know, at 13, that's kind of like a worst case scenario already that you've experienced and dealt with. And I mean, it sounds like you handled it great. And then I would imagine going forward from there, you're like, well, if the worst thing happens, I already know I can somehow navigate it. And then after that, I mean, that's amazing, man.
2: Yeah, I mean, I. But I also feel like at that age, I wasn't hitting the teen nerves and anxiety yet. Mm -hmm. As I got a little older, I'd start to beat myself up a little more afterwards about that kind of stuff. Like I'd have gigs or jazz band concerts where I borrowed someone's kit. and It was falling apart as I'm playing. And like, you know, I'm still like I could recover from that. But, you know, it's kind of a rare thing to be able to recover at that young of an age well going through all of the things that and you
1: all the influences that you had definitely laid the foundation totally. you know, to be able to, to be able to do this <clears throat> because when you when you see that the worst case scenario isn't the worst case you know like everything else is okay right you know so that, and that's how you're able to to, to adapt right like most yeah. people say like fight or flight right mm-hmm. like when you realize that you can just keep going and it's cool then it sets you up for, for success, I think on all levels right. So I think that's really cool that, that you you learn that at such a, a young age through observation and how do you suppose because um, like you said your, music, your musician friends ask you, well how do you do that? how do you how do you improvise a musical? If we, I think we discovered here that it's it's through your upbringing and your mental state that you're able to do that like your, your ability to to play through mistakes and adapt to situations mm-hmm. and and overcome the worst case scenario. How would you advise young musicians uh, starting out their pro career to start to
2: work on that skill? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, that's... Maybe that's, take an improv class? Um, I've never taken an improv class. I would like to sometime to learn a little more, but I've done the improvised musical for five years now. So that's that's a lot of... Sh- I. Now it's turned into a weekly thing. I mm-hmm. don't do it every week now, but I've done a lot of them where... I've learned how the improvisers like to think or musically where they're most comfortable. I mean Dan, my the piano player I work with has a way harder job than me in terms of like finding the keys that are good for them, figuring out chord progressions that they can easily latch onto. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's not always like one six two five but you know there's just pop forms that he's going through or even like it's not even honestly, I can't even remember, A time where I felt like he's repeated a chord progression and all the stuff we've done Mm -hmm. and all the styles we've done. You know, maybe there are similar styles, but we always try to make it different every time. So, I mean, I guess the best way to describe how to improvise is just having a strong vocabulary. Just listening to everything and not being too cool for certain styles. You know, Hmm. you don't need to, you know, drill yourself with... 10,000 hours of jazz, you know, if you don't like, you don't like it, but you should be familiar with a lot of the different endings that are familiar. And, you know, I'm I'm sure, you know, hopefully young people are reading lead sheets and trying out those gigs and trio gigs, but it's the vocabulary that helps with the improvisation Mm -hmm. and learning to jump in. And, you know, there are some drummers that we also sub in that may not have the same training as me. But as long as they watch the show and understand it, like the, you know, you can pick it up and you just can't have any fear when you do it. You just have to yes and, and and keep going and realize that it's it's an art that we're making. And we don't always film it because a lot of these improvised shows aren't filmed because the idea is Maybe this group of people that is watching this show will understand this the best because they're in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's why like with comedy shows, it's almost better that it's a smaller space because everyone's closer and it's a little more intimate. And that nervousness of being closer makes people laugh more because they're uncomfortable already about how close they are to a stage where they're not gonna perform. So they're they're laughing at what's happening on stage. And so by by crunching it in, it creates this form where these people in the room understand what's happening. And when we all leave, that art is over. But if you show that video to someone else, they may not understand the jokes. They may not get what's happening. So we like to keep it contained and like everyone like is together making it, even if you're not on stage, because we're inspired by how the audience is reacting to certain things. So it's it's hard to explain. I hope that well, was it,
0: that's excellent. Okay. And I think that's a very Jazz mentality in a way, you know, it's about it's not about creating perfection. It's about creating a moment in time and Being in the room is part of being part of that moment And if you were to watch it online the next day, it's not the same
2: Right, like you you may and and that's the other thing with a lot of comedy specials We've seen or certain concerts you may watch it at home and be like "Eh, "That was kind of funny, right? It was all right You know wasn't the best but if you were there live Oh, it's the best thing you've ever seen. Yeah, just like a lot of gigs. Yeah. Yeah, totally.
1: So before we move on from the yes and topic, which I, I think is awesome, um, can, you, can you give like a practical exercise that somebody could do
2: to start to develop this? Yeah, so, so the way that Dan and I are overall thinking when we make this improvisation, uh, and this isn't every time, but it's the basic roadmap, is song structure. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. That's our main structure of how we're going to try to keep this uh, glued together so it doesn't go too crazy. So uh, I'd say intro and then verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. So we start an intro. We show everyone the feel. And it can inspire a number of things. Whatever Dan's playing could either be something sad. It could be something beautiful it could be like anything to inspire the scene and dan's listen we're both listening to the dialogue where even i might start a song instead of dan for the chords like i just may start a groove because i'm thinking oh they just said that line that kind of references i don't know uh duop music and so i just start doing a duo beat or oh like this character is uh seems like he would probably rap so let's do a hip-hop beat you know it I could start or he could. But when we go from there, the players are going to start doing a verse. We're going to think in forms of eight. And then after like the second eight for the pre chorus or whatever, I start to lead them in with a crescendoed fill Mm -hmm. or just maybe even eighth notes like. And then we go into the chorus. And so I make that chorus bigger. And then I kind of signal that we're about to wind down to the verse again. So with my fills and my feel, I'm kind of making this, the song form for them and showing them the roadmap rhythmically. Dan showing them harmonically. Right. And then when we get to the bridge, we may break it down completely. I just may go to suspended cymbal. I may just drop out. I may do two and four in the hat. But whatever it is, I'm trying to build it so we get back to that chorus And then if we're doing the last chorus, I may do like a shout feel where I'm doing quarter notes and all four for the snare. So they know, hey, this is it. This is the big ending. Mm -hmm. But this may be our map, but it may change completely. It may become like an AAB form. It may like they may do a hoedown. They may do anything where we're switching on the fly. But as long as we're communicating with them and kind of like hearing what they're doing, we can all pick up the rhythms. And ideas. Okay, and what about advice you would
1: give people to develop the uh, the mindset of improvisation? And what what I mean a little bit deeper here is um, I, I work with a lot of beginner students, and whenever we start to discuss improvisation, there's nine out of ten times the person is very timid on like wanting to explore at all. Until we kind of walk the path a little bit, and I've also come across. Classically trained musicians, phenomenal musicians, that you put them in an improvisation setting and they don't know what to do. Like they're like, my sheet music is in front of me. I can't do this. So, I always think that this is this is from a, um, a thought perspective, right? It, um, so, what what advice would you give someone to develop this ability to to improvise and be okay with? Yes, I like that idea,
2: and let's try this. Hmm. You know, it's. <sighs> I wish I could say it was an easy thing to teach because it's, it's a whole mindset of telling yourself that there is no wrong in, in just going out and doing it. I mean, there's obviously rules, you know, if you're in a scale of, of, you know, if you're in a blues scale, you have to be improvising in the blues scale. But I mean, the way I learned to improvise is literally just playing along to my favorite songs and styles and kind of doing my own thing and just seeing how, if I changed it to what it originally, from what it originally was, like, like completely different, if I take it in time, if I do double time, like, what does that feel like? Am I comfortable with that? Let's try doing that for the verse and chorus. Let's change it up in the bridge. Let's do these different things. So I think just like taking the things you love and changing it from what it originally is and practicing that way will help form the vocabulary of learning that you can adapt on the fly. That's so cool. Uh, and we did a
1: workshop this past weekend with with one of our previous guests, Elliot Yamin, and he was talking about, that's how he developed the skill of writing songs, is he would take his, some of his favorite songs and write out the lyrics and then do the opposite of those lyrics, like like write out other sets of lyrics that were basically like the mere opposite of yeah. that, and then mess around with the melody. You know, start with a foundation, mess around with the melody with these new lyrics, and boom, you got a song. Yeah, right. So I think that's great. That's a very, very practical exercise. Take something you're comfortable with, right, and then use that as the platform to dabble in other areas and and develop your your uh, ability to improvise. Yeah,
2: I do it all the time. That's very cool. With with and I even do that in the improv like for baby wants candy where they're expecting like Dan may be playing an tempo thing and mm-hmm. then I half time it or he'll play something slow and then I'll double time it mm-hmm. just to, because after a while, like, you know, it, it depends on the show, but sometimes we may not be as inspired by some things. It may just be kind of stuck in a place and then one of us needs to give it some energy. You can throw your own mini grenade. Exactly. Yeah. I do yeah, throw yeah. the mini grenades by yeah. changing up the gr- rhythms because yeah. they won't expect it. Right. Or if I just see like, it's kind of stuck somewhere. I'm going to do a hoedown right now. I'm going to do a gospel thing. And all of a sudden it turns into a patter song where it's just like, do you know the music man? Do you know that musical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, when they're talking so fast, it, right. like, it's like early rap music, <laughs> right. right. you know, with the train song. So I all of a sudden play a fast beat expecting them to be like, all right guys, you got to be on your A game. Yeah. You got to talk fast. Because then if nothing
0: else, you're at least forcing them out of the monotony of whatever, if it's like in a rut, like you said. Right. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something a few minutes ago that I wanted to come back to, which is the tendency to beat yourself up over gigs and things like that. And I think that's a pretty common issue for people, whether it's students uh, that we deal with or even with colleagues and professional musicians, you know, being overly hard on yourself and beating yourself up. Uh, you know, what has been your experience with that and your journey and what you know, how have you if if you have gotten over it, how have you gotten over it?
2: <laughs> it's it is an ongoing journey that will have certain ups and downs over the years. I grew up as someone who would beat myself up all the time. I mean, I heard Nick Petrillo's episode. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, the similar thing. Nick and I go way back. Yeah. But uh, you know, when I was growing up, um, I so when I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher that really pushed my boundaries. Her name is Mrs. Flynn, and you know I was a fine student, like an A B student. But then when I got to her, it was like it was fifth grade, and she wanted to treat it like we were in middle school, and so she just made everything harder, and I it like just changed my, it, it flipped my mind because I couldn't believe how hard this was. And it took a little bit longer, not that I couldn't do the material, but it was a lot of material that was starting to kind of learn time management. And my parents had even pushed, like, you know, get your work done Friday when you get home from school. So the rest of the weekend, you have it free. And I didn't understand that concept then. And that's my concept all the time now. But uh, from that age and from that teacher who taught me and we like she became like a huge mentor to me at that age, like I learned like, oh, there's. Things are getting harder, and so when I started to do drums, I was slowly learning that I was beating myself up. It really, it was high school that it hit, but through middle school, like I was feeling good. You know, when when you're young and you do something well, sometimes you get a big head when you're little. So, so that was happening a little bit, and it slowly faded out. But I got to high school, and I had a band teacher who was a football coach. Like he wasn't a literal football coach, but he acted like. This is a sports team. You better work your ass off. Like, we're working hard here. This is a, a sport. And so over the years, I was working even harder based on how I grew up in fifth grade on. And I was just beating myself up all the time. There was a competition we did. Uh, well, I grew up in Rhode Island. I should mention that. But we We flew down to Florida for a competition. It was like a jazz band thing, a marching band thing, like every ensemble we had. And I had a solo. I got off stage, and I said to my teacher, "Like that was the worst solo I've ever done. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know why I was so stupid. That was terrible." And I just kept beating myself up the whole day. We had an award ceremony that night, and I there was like a ton of our seniors won musician awards. I was the only junior that won a musician award for my solo. And the whole it's like you know, I wish I wasn't beating myself up and just acknowledging, like, I did the best I could. Right. And then it turned out okay. And well, then, so,
0: it, it, not to cut you off, but so it's, you end up getting recognized for it being an excellent solo. Did that, at that point, change your perception of what your solo was in hindsight, or? No. <laughs> you still didn't, were not satisfied. I still but wasn't. So were you, was the dissatisfaction coming from, that you didn't feel you did your best, or was it that you did
2: feel your best and you felt your best wasn't good enough? It was the the first thing that you didn't think. I, you did I your best. didn't think I did my best. Yeah, and so throughout high school, I I just still continued to beat myself up over things, even though like I was being recognized. Mm-hmm. In my head, it felt like ninety eight percent and not a right. hundred or right. hundred and one. So I that mindset kept going into college. I wasn't beating myself up so much, but I was pushing myself Mm -hmm. a lot. I went to Berkeley with Nick. That's how I know Nick. Um, That's how I know you. That's how, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, um, I'd say not until I got out here over the past, like, I want to say like five years or so, it really started to come in even deeper Mm -hmm. of just beating myself up with just life stuff in general of like certain gigs or certain jobs and this and that. And, and there was a time where I, I had to talk to someone about it because it was just getting so bad. There, it was so bad that I did a hundred mile bike ride in Lake Tahoe around the entire lake. It was an eight hour bike. I got a flat tire at mile 99 of a hundred. And my team who was so annoyed that they had to help me, they helped me fix the tire. I We fixed the tire. Four minutes later, we crossed the finish line. We get back to our hotel and I had a nervous breakdown of like, you idiot, you just got a flat tire in 99. You finished the race, but you are terrible. And it was, I mean, like, it's crazy that I was thinking that way, but it it was true. And so it even applied to some of the gigs that I was doing where I was afraid to sub myself out because I was afraid I wouldn't get called again. Mm -hmm. And you know, you get that mentality when, when you're afraid of, you know, yeah losing gigs and stuff. And so I was talking to someone about it and they kind of phrased it as, well, because I my mentality for working with people as we all, like you all get this, you want to work with someone you like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It doesn't matter if they're the best musician in the world. If they're a jerk, why would you work with them? It's not fun. I'd rather work with someone who, I don't want to say necessarily is not as good of a player as them, but I'd rather work with someone who's nice. And so I've always said that but then when I was telling someone about this, how, you know, I'm afraid to sub out gigs. I don't want to lose things. And they kind of flipped that on me and said, well, wait a minute. Don't people hire you because they like you? So then why are you worried? Like, they'll call you. It's right. going to be okay. Yeah. And it just kind of opened my mind and realized like, oh, okay, I can sub out. I can actually like be okay with things. And so I started to feel good about it. And say like, hey, can you sub out for this, sub out for that? And uh, it was something that I'm, I've gotten better at through mindfulness exercises and just kind of trying to calm my mind down. But it, it's a struggle that will continue, but it's, it's getting better. If you don't mind me asking, what
1: are you doing to calm your mind down?
2: <sighs> what am I doing? I, I'm a constant runner. Uh, I, I do a lot of marathons and I like to run in the morning, and I don't listen to music when I run. Wow. Um, I Over the time, I got out of it. It, it took some time for me because I was so attached to the music. And then finally, through mindfulness exercises and practicing that, I learned that I could run without music and just kind of calm my brain down, which, which took some time. But I'd say there's that. And then in moments of stress, I try to get out of my head kind of look at the situation from the outside and just make sure like, is this really something you need to stress out about? And there's that game of not game, but exercise of what's the worst thing that could happen. You go through everything of like, Hey, what happens if I'm, uh, late for this gig? Well, then they won't, you know, they may not hire you again. Well then what? And you keep saying then what, and then what, and you kind of break it down to, you know, is it that bad? Right. You know, you you need to decide. By the way, I'd never be late for a gig. I'm a time <laughs> freak, so <laughs> that's never going to happen. But, uh, you know, just kind of getting outside of your head and analyzing the entire situation of what the worst thing that could happen would be kind of helps you break down the stress of realizing it's not as bad as I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like in, I heard next episode, so we might repeat a few things, but, you know, over-preparing, Yep. Or it was someone else that said that, yeah, too. Yeah, Dave but Hooper. That's who it was, yeah. Yep. So over-preparing for gigs. I kind of like what I was saying with the homework of getting that done on Friday instead of Sunday night. Yep. I completely over-prepare for my gigs to the point of like getting nervous. Like Even though I'm over-prepared, I'm still like, all right, let's hope everything works out when I get into rehearsal. And I get into rehearsal, and I'm fine. And then everyone else like there may be one other person who's still learning something. Right. And then I'm like, "Phew. Yeah. Like I'm good. <laughs> I overprepared. I may have stressed myself out over preparing, but at least I don't need to do my homework when I'm in the room." Yeah. That makes sense. Absolutely. I think it's
1: incredible that you you've tied this into your musicality because everything you just described from a mental state is what you described as what you're doing in the um uh in the improv in the, in the uh Yeah. It kind of went hand in hand with yeah, that no, stuff. It's so great that you're committed like all around, you know, because they they tie into each other perfectly.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it took time for me to kind of realize all this. Like back when I was first doing the improv, I didn't relate that to what my, you know, my stress was. But over time I realized, oh, this is exactly the same thing. Why am I so comfortable here and not mentally? And so I kind of adapted the rules, like you were saying, of the improv and then realizing that it's the same thing it's all the same thing and in mm-hmm. you know improv is taught not just to people who want to do comedy but i know like different corporate companies ceos and stuff will also take improv classes or like google or someone like that will invite improv teams to come in and kind of teach improv skills that are helpful for just speaking in general and so it's i think it's really cool how improv is kind of bleeding into a lot of other facets Sure,
1: because now we can, why explore one thing when you can explore everything?
2: Exactly. Well, Instead to, of being stuck in a conversation and not knowing where to go, yeah. like I can typically take any conversation with people and kind of continue it and not just get stuck of like, all right, I said my three things that I always say. What am I going to do right, now? Right. You
1: know, We're looking for a third co-host, so if you're interested, <laughs> yeah. then oh, gee. <laughs> do you tell jokes? <laughs> not as good as Dave, though. <laughs> I'm going to
0: sub out to you for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to just to take it even a little bit deeper and personal and things, you know, I think the root of a lot of unhappiness, either big or small, comes from expectations. And so, you know, for example, having, you know, small kids at home when my kids were, were littler, you will wake up with an expectation that your day is going to go a certain way and you'll have five grenades thrown at your day before <laughs> yeah. 10 a.m., you know? Oh, yeah. And so you learn to let go of expectations, and you learn... It's like another form of yes and, What you know, whether it's the flow of your day or anything. I used to get really bent out of shape when my schedule... Because mm. I plan out my day, like the night before. If my predetermined schedule gets rocked by anyone in any way, it used to be bad for me, you know? I totally and get it, that. Yeah. And I, I learned... Yeah. Not just through my kids, but just in general, I've learned over time uh, that the, the key to happiness is not having expectations. Not to say you don't <laughs> want to be productive and plan, but right. you have to hold to it loosely and you have to, I think the yes and is a beautiful, you know, example of that in play.
2: Yeah. I, really I, cool. I don't want to say like that has been my life motto for my entire life. It's right. more something I learned over time over oh, the past definitely. few years.
0: But I think, you know? yeah, anyone listening to this who's just being turned onto that concept for the first time. Uh, that could be life changing.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. I, right? I mean, I've read books with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler talking all about that. Yeah, that the yes ending is life changing for yeah. them, where they've learned to, you know, accept new things they never understood before, or yeah. just like going with the flow, which not everyone can do. Yeah, and you know, I totally get that expectations thing of like your schedule being interrupted by something, and there are times when you are doing work, or you know, it's a Friday night. And you're done for the week. Like, all right, time for my next thing. And you might get an email from someone at like six o'clock on a Friday that says like, hey, so sorry, we need to get this done. Can you help out? Now, there's so many emotions that you could go through with that where you're like, well, first of all, why are you messing with my time? (laughs) This is Mm -hmm. Friday night. I have something going on at this time. But then there's the flip side of this where at first you think you're being attacked Like, oh, you're not done with work yet, but you also need to realize that the person who's sending the email may have had someone tell them, hey, we need to get this done at Friday night. Yeah. They don't want to be working on
0: Friday night either.
2: Right. Yeah. And so it's sometimes hard to understand that Mm -hmm. when someone's pushing you at a certain time or a Saturday or Monday at five o'clock and they don't know that you're about to go see your kids or see your wife or something. and over time it's, it's hard to like you, like you said, you need to lower the expectations or just get rid of expectations and Mm -hmm. just say like, all right, well let's, yes. And this situation, Hey, I can help you out right now with this real quick or say, Hey, I can't help you out, but what can I do to alleviate this stress Mm -hmm. that you have? And you know, it's, it's hard to figure that out. But like you were saying, You kind of need to drop those expectations and just roll with it Yep. and figure out like if you can't solve it, then yes and and figure out how someone else can help. Yep. And then maybe come back and check in and say, hey, did did you get that solved? Was it all good? Because that way it's showing that you didn't just pass it on. You followed up and said, hey, I know I passed it on to you, but I just want to make sure you're taken care of. Right.
0: To show that you're not just passing the buck. Right. And I think for musicians, we're notorious for being bad at setting boundaries because it's not like we're punching a nine to five clock or whatever. And like work is friends and friends are work and music is work and it's fun. And it's Mm -hmm. all just like this big blurry mess of of life, you know, and it's hard. it, It is hard, man, to like set boundaries of... When are you going to email? When are you going to really be working? And when not? Because there's you're
1: making your own rules, so right. it's, it's a tough thing, man. And yeah. then once you do set those boundaries, like you were talking about earlier with the schedule, and they get interrupted, yeah. Now you it goes into chaos. Yeah. You know, like that. That is, for me, definitely the hardest thing that I've had to deal with in the past five years is adapting to when things don't fit into my schedule the way yeah. I had them planned. Because you have so many things coming at you every day. That, uh, you know, if you fall an hour behind, and I, I get where you come from with, like, the high-performance mentality. Like, you start to fall behind in my head. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not winning the day. I'm not winning the day. <laughs> yeah. There's you know, that, and then there's,
2: there's that chess game that I play in my head of, like, okay, we just moved this piece. So then 12 steps later, that's yeah. going to be affected. Yep. And, like, yeah. my sometimes my wife is, like, you know, what what's wrong? And then I can't even compute, like, <laughs> well, I have these 12 steps, and if we don't do this and that and that, then that's affected. And you just have to deal with it. See, kids, <laughs> isn't being a musician fun? <laughs> isn't it being <laughs> an adult fun? <laughs> um,
1: is it? If it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about uh, you as a music supervisor. Yeah. All right. So, well, what is that? There's a lot of people that are just kind of green to the industry. Um,
2: listening to the show, tell what is that? What is a music supervisor? So, it's funny because I've also talked with some other friends lately who also said that they're a music supervisor. But it can be taken in many different ways as to what that means. Some may see that as a music director when it comes to a performance setting or a theater setting. But in my setting, a music supervisor, uh, you can see that title in movies, TV, video games, advertisements, like any type of production like that. And what that entails is licensing music for a medium, a TV commercial, a TV show, a movie. So what I mean by that is in order for someone to use a piece of music in one a TV show or whatever, you need to get permission to use that song. You can't just grab the song, throw it on there and say, cool, we used Led Zeppelin in this movie and we didn't pay them anything. So you need to get permission from the, the full song. And what I mean by the full song is whoever owns the master recording is typically a label who owns that. So it's the actual recording you're hearing. And then you need to get permission from the publisher. The publisher represents the composer or writer. And so so two sides are the sound recording and the writers. You need to get permission from both sides. If you don't have both sides, you are not legally allowed to license that piece of music. So even if the label who has the recording says, yeah, you can use the recording, but the songwriter said, no, then then you are in trouble. Hmm. So what I do... Is, you know, for the video games I work on, like Call of Duty or Guitar Hero or whatnot, um, like let's say we want to use a song in a trailer for Call of Duty. I go to the people who own those recordings, I tell them, okay, this is how we're using it. We're using it, you know, for this amount of time, it's gonna be released on these types of mediums, whether it's like internet or, you know, other like industrial, which has to do with like outdoor like billboards and stuff like that. Um, so I say that, I say how long we're using it and I say, this is how much we can give you. Does this work for you? And it may or may not work for them. They may want more. They may be fine with the fee. Uh, if they represent a hundred percent of the song, meaning both the recording and the publishing, then that's a lot easier for me because I don't need to go to multiple people. And then if that is good, then I say, great, let me make sure we're confirmed on my end. Uh, with my company to make sure we can pay them and we accept the terms and then we go ahead and license which has to do with the papering of an agreement where we you know go through that if they have any changes we review it and then we get them paid so but I do that for the commercials uh, the music in the games that's being used uh, for internal things that we're doing like internal videos kind of all the above that's needed for the company so Another thing with songwriters is not every songwriter is at the same publisher. There may be like two songwriters represented by this one publisher and then maybe there's another publisher. So then there's like three or more parties. Sometimes it goes up to like 10 parties. For one song. For one song. Right. Like hip hop music is some of the hardest stuff to clear because (laughs) they have so many writers in the room. Mm -hmm. There could be like 10 writers on it there could be samples that are being used, so you have to clear the individual sample as well. So, like, let's say, for example, uh, who did that cover Summertime? Was that a... Uh, what's the band? Yeah, not, not the... It was, like, a hip-hop version. Like the, wasn't it, like, Will Smith or something? It was, like, Will Smith, or it was, like... I don't want to say Beastie Boys, but it was someone like that. Uh, they, they used Summertime, the jazz standard, so they had to clear the publishing of that song... Because they used the song within the song. So, if it's like, here, here's an example there was a Fallout Boy song I had to clear, and the recording used a sample of the Monsters theme, you know, the TV show The Monsters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I had to go to NBC to clear the master recording of that sample. Wow. And then I had to go to the person who wrote the Monsters theme and get that approved with the writer. And then on top of that, I had to get the Fallout Boy Master approved, and then all the publishers and writers approved for that as well. So it is detective work where I'm using ASCAP, BMI, any type of performance rights organizations, going through their databases, kind of solving, okay, who has what? I see we're missing that. Let me see if I go to this site. Let me see if I can write on Facebook to the person, if I go to the Facebook page, or I go to their website in the About or the Contact area and I write to them and then even if I found 99% of the publishing and there's still 1% I still need to find that 1% we're not good we have to get everyone on board so that's my job (laughs) that sounds
0: um, terrible but (laughs) but also it sounds I mean it sounds stressful are you under like deadlines with that scenario too because it seems to me the hardest part one of the hardest parts of that would be People just not replying to you, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even in the like fraction of that world that I have to be in, like people
2: not replying is
0: a huge problem, you know?
2: Yeah, it's yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. There are times when there are deadlines that are happening the next day. Uh, there are timelines where it's in a few days or, or the following week or a month. It, like you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'd say, depending on the medium you're working in, the timelines could be a little bit faster. When I was in advertising, uh, timelines were around the clock. So ad agencies would be working 24 hours a day and I might get a request at like 9 p.m. at night where they say, hey, can you clear this song by 11 a.m. tomorrow in case of our client wants to use that song? Now, keep in mind, they they may be on like East Coast time. If they're emailing me at 7 o'clock right. my time, it's 10 o'clock their time. So if they're saying we need it by 11 a.m. tomorrow morning, that means I have until 8 a.m. Yeah. my time in the morning to get this done. Wow! Now, that may not realistically happen every time, but I can do my best, send emails, send texts, whatever I got to do yeah. to get it done and find out all those pieces at a lightning speed. And that was a real mental workout for me, learning how to clear music for ad agencies because it's so fast. Video games is, is slightly slower with the speed not that it's slow but it's not as urgent as like in four hours right you know it could be next day and after doing all that i've gotten the mental muscle of being able to clear super fast <laughs> you know getting on the phone knowing what i need being comfortable telling them what i need and just getting it done
1: hmm. wow
2: do you ever get pitch songs
1: the artists that come to you and say hey i want to get my stuff placed i do and uh, and so this is probably a, a good thing to share some wisdom on f- for people.
2: Yeah. So it's it's an interesting position that I'm in as a music supervisor, which uh so so for people to understand, people could pitch me music all the time of like, "Hey, I have this album or this song that I think will work great for video games." And that's definitely a possibility, but it depends on all the other people I'm working with because technically I'm just the gatekeeper. I'm the one who hears the music, but there's so many people above me who make decisions because it's got to go through like, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 people to also agree wow. that, you know, you know, cause if you think about it, like it's a company yeah, where like, there's like, you know, the marketing manager and then the person above that and the person above that. If that final person is cool with it, then we're good. But it, we just, you know, it's hard to get everyone on board at the same time for something. But then on the flip side, the people who are pitching the music also need to understand where I'm coming from. Like you, <laughs> this may seem easier said than done, but watch what we do, like study the things that we put out with music, figure out like what we do and make sure you don't pitch something that we don't need, you know? Right. Like it, you know, it'd be amazing if, if, if we could use a jazz song for a, a shooter game, but right. they don't always need that. You know, we need what is needed, like yeah. as you see in the commercials and whatnot. So there's a lot of times where people are pitching me things where like, it sounds great. I just don't think it's necessarily going to work. Cause that's not what I'm asked for. Right. I'm working on what's, what's asked of me. So, you know, I'll hear something and if I think it works, then I can try to pitch it and then we see how it goes on the way up. But the other important thing about supervision and pitching music, and it sounds, again, easier said than done, as long as you know how to create an invoice, <laughs> fill out a W-9, um, read an agreement and understand what it means, that's going to help you just as much as you being you know, musically capable of making a song. Because at that point, like, it's just human tasks of like knowing how to be an adult and having, you know, all these things. And I give you an agreement that has these common terms, and you start arguing me about, like, well, I think it should be, we should change this and change that. Like, you're going to make things harder and it's going to take longer. We may not want to work with that person. Now, I, you know, they may be right or wrong, but the point is, like, It's another yes and situation where like you need to be knowledgeable of what this is and understand how this is going to go down. And so the other thing too is there are so many people who have songs who get worried about people owning music. Like, you know, if you're trying to sign your music library to another library that will pitch your music, and sometimes people are afraid of the exclusivity versus non-exclusivity and how long the term is and... The thing I say about that stuff is, you know, you can write more than one song. You
1: can write mm-hmm. more than
2: 20 songs. Mm-hmm. Like you need to fully trust the people that you're allowing to pitch your music. Uh, and if you're okay with that music, going them. Give it to them. See how they do. Maybe set a term with them. And then if that, after that time, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you can always write more music. Like If there's music that you have that you don't want to give away, then don't give it away hold on to it, make that your personal music and then write more. Cause I'm sure, you know, those composers out there can write more than just the 10 songs they think are their best. Like, I'm sure there's plenty more in your head. You're not done. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, with that kind of stuff, people kind of have to, yes, and, and go with the flow with it of like, and just understanding everyone's point of view, the point of view that I'm kind of the gatekeeper. I'm going to do my best to listen and see if it's going to work, and then let's see if everyone else agrees with that. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Man>.
1: <laughs> you got you're an ocean of knowledge Amazing, today. Yeah. Man, this is awesome. I think this would be a good time to kind of segue uh, back into your playing. And um, a question we've been asking our guests lately is, "What are you working on?" So, uh, if, kind of getting away from music music supervision and back into your actual playing, can you talk about uh, a, a mu- something musical? In, in whether drums or studying or whatever it is that you're developing right now? Yeah. How so, are you getting better?
2: So kind of coming back to the, the beating myself up stuff and just like thinking about like how I can, you know, be a little bit healthier with being happy musically with what I'm doing. Uh, there was this thing I used to do back in college where I was, I studied arranging at Berkeley and I was kind of, like a weird owl type of arranger where I would take songs and flip them on their head. And so I would take system of a downs chop suey and turn it into a bossa Nova. Of course that's the natural way to go. Right. I would take uh, uh, green days, American idiot, make it a mambo. I would take destiny child survivor, blend it with Justin Timberlake's cry me a river, make it a tango, like a hip hop tango with horns. And I would do all these weird arrangements And so by the time I finished college and moved out here, uh, I was kind of hoping to get into that stuff with arranging, but I couldn't see the market yet. So I went into other things, but then like maybe five years later, I saw this thing called postmodern jukebox that was coming out and immediately my head went, Oh, (laughs) I can't do that. Right. Cause that's happening. Yeah. And then I see scary pockets a couple of years ago. Yeah. Like, ah, Damn it, like all these people are are doing the things that I wanted to do. And they're and all it,
0: things that like you don't need more than one of necessarily. Right. Yeah.
2: So I started to feel that way and kind of got a little discouraged. Yeah. Like, damn it, like I wish I banked on this years ago. Yeah. So through my thinking of like ways I can make myself happier, I even went to a Scary Pockets concert and they were saying at the end, like, you know, thank you guys for coming here and believing in us, like, you know, if there's something you want to do, just do it. Like, and that's such Hmm. an obvious stereotypical phrase of like, if you want to do something, just do it. So then I started talking with my wife and said, you know, I've always wanted to do that thing that they're doing because that's what I like to do. But I want to do it on my own terms. But, it, you know, if it turns into a, a big thing like that, like, I mean, that would be amazing. But I also don't care. I kind of just want to do it to do it or else I'm just going to keep saying, man, I wish I did that. I wish I put together a 10 person ensemble and did the arrangements I did in my senior recital. I had a 20 person senior recital where I had 10 vocalists and then like a 10 piece band and just did these huge, crazy arrangements. And so instead of just saying, I wish I did that, I said, let's do it. I'm going to try to start this from the bottom and see where we go. So this was in February, where I I thought, I'm very methodical and technical with the way I like plan things. Uh, So I said, okay, if I can get myself to do this, just me, on drums, just try to do one once a week, just a video, 60 seconds, let's see how I do for like two months. So I started to just film myself once a week, editing myself, and I put out the first one and people were kind of into it. So then I came up with more ideas from the improv background and I thought, okay, how about this? Why don't I just make up a drum beat and then I'm just going to write, oh no, I did the opposite. I said, I'm going to write music first and then I'm going to make a drum beat to that. I did one or the other, whatever I did, I did one or the other to force myself to do more work on the other end. So that's what it was. I did the drum beat first and then I wrote the music to that drum beat. And then just kept challenging myself every week. So I did about like eight or nine weeks of just me on drums. I was learning more about social media. I wasn't a fan of hashtags at the time, but then I learned that that's how you get more viewers of like finding the right hashtags. So after about eight or nine weeks, I thought, okay, it's time to bring in a pianist. Let's bring in a second person. So from that point, I started to do an improv thing where I said, hey, how about this? We're gonna come in cold. We're going to make something up right now. And it's whatever it is. If we're enjoying it, great. If we don't like it, throw it out. Let's do something new. And so at first, kind of like what you were saying earlier, Jason, about like classical musicians being afraid of improvisation. Mm-hmm. Some of my players were saying, oh, no, I could never do that. I would never want to improvise something and then put it out on the Internet. I said, why, why not? It's going to be fun. If we don't like it, let's change it. So... With each musician, I was getting them, they came in scared and then they left smiling because they actually were like, that was fun. Like, I didn't even have to plan anything. Like, I know that's what improv is. So I started to add more pianists to the videos. And then one of my pianists was also a singer. She said, Why don't we try singing? I'm like, okay, now's the time to add a new element. Let's do it. Got more views because we had a singer now. So then I kept going and now I've, I've done a three person video and then I did a four person video and I'm on week 28 now. Oh, wow. so done 28 weeks of consistent videos and I'm about to go on vacation in a couple weeks. So I've already stacked up like four videos for the next month where yeah. I'm, I'm set. And so then next month I'm building out a space at my home where it's going to be a bigger live room where I can use real drums, because I've been using V drums this whole time. That's mm-hmm. the other thing I should mention. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had to edit every single video because the velocity isn't that easy you know, oh, when you're yeah. playing in. Yeah. So I'm going in, editing every single note I'm playing. <laughs> oh my God. Every <laughs> single note the pianist is playing and fixing corrections and just like, really working while having everything else I do in my life (laughs) of just like forcing me to do something that I said I was going to do. I was about to miss a week, a couple of weeks ago because there was a problem with the video. And my wife was like, it's okay. Like you can miss a week. Like, no, I cannot miss a week. I'm just going to film a video at midnight and just like do something. I don't care. And I kept it going. So I haven't stopped yet. So that's awesome. Musically to bring it all back to the beginning. This is going to keep building. I'm going to make the five-person ensemble and I'm going to get to that 10-person ensemble. and I'm going to find, I have a whole list of like 100 artists and songs that I wrote and gave myself a challenge because I'm eventually going to write horn parts, guitar parts, all this. It's going to be, hopefully, you know, let's hope this works out, but I want to make that 10-person ensemble and not just sit there and go, man, I wish I did something like Scary Pockets.
1: Is it the outcome you're looking for or you find more joy in the journey? the journey.
2: Yeah, I'd say. Because has it, has it always been like that for you? I think so. I think so because I mean I've so I've done about 5 marathons now, mm-hmm. like full 26.2 marathons. And every time I finish a marathon, there's that 5 minutes of I'm good. I'm not doing this again. And then the 5 minutes go by and I turn to my wife and I say I'm going to do next year. I'm going to do another one. Cuz I keep wanting to do it cuz I keep wanting to get better. And by doing these 28, 29 weeks of videos, I've learned so much more than I've ever learned musically when it comes to mixing, when it comes to editing, when it comes to directing, when it comes like everything has just forced me to learn more than just like sitting there going, oh, I wish I did more stuff like that. So it's been a real journey of, of learning, you know, plugins and like I've already known plugins, but it's forcing me to learn them even more and understanding how to mix.
0: And the awesome thing about that is that it's completely self-created and self-imposed, like a self-imposed deadline. Yeah. And it's a thing that you are just, you're making something from nothing. And that's awesome, man. That's
2: really Thank cool. You. It's, it's been really fun. I'm glad I forced myself to do it. Yeah. Cause it's really cool. Now it's hopefully going to get to the place I want it to go. And then I will feel satisfied, but we'll keep going Yeah. until, you know, if those expectations are dropped and then grenades happen and yep. we'll see, but I'm enjoying the journey. Oh, I just wrote down the the, the phrase
1: marathon thinking because that's kind of like what you're doing here. Uh, so good. I, I think there's so many amazing gems that I think the listeners are going to get <laughs> out of this uh, marathon that we went on today. You know, yeah. It was really good. Uh, Dave, you got anything you want to jump in with before we get to, to the uh, final questions? Actually, I have two things.
0: Eric, first of all, I just want to say that it's so fun talking to you man and like you are so inspiring to me and i know that this is going to be an inspiring episode for so many people it's one of my favorite episodes we've done yeah. oh thanks yeah. man. it's just yeah, nice i'm so glad we did this and i've gotten to know you a lot more th- just tonight which is cool and second thing we mentioned earlier today jason that we want to publicly give a shout out to Joel Smith Oh yes, who thank is you. Yes, newly, somewhat newly, our producer and engineer of right. this podcast, and is doing an awesome job.
1: He has to listen to these jokes, go back <laughs> yeah, and forth, right. and there's plenty, plenty of editing that happens in these jokes. <laughs> Kidding, that was my version of a joke. This is why Dave we'll does the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, you're the man. Thank you so thank much, you, Joel. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's um, kind of go towards the end here and get some advice that you would give musicians starting their career Ooh,
2: huh I'd say well number one uh try not to beat yourself up <laughs> as we've learned through these episodes it's it is a very long journey as we all know it it is marathon training you you have to start from somewhere and take it slow and eventually you'll get to the place you want to be but it is, it is a slow burn all the time i mean you agree right like you're still You guys are still learning stuff every day and just the expectations that we all have on ourselves, like just ride the wave, just take the journey. Yes. And everything. I feel like I'm going to be trademarked for that or something, (laughs) but you know, seriously, like just having a good intuition on things and just saying yes, when you know, it hits all the points that, that you want to satisfy your career with. You know, there are some gigs we have that are not great and some gigs we have that are amazing and you don't know it unless if you have an intuition that it could go somewhere. So I'd say, you know, just understand it's a long journey and over time you're going to see that it's going to get easier and then it'll get harder, it'll get easier and you just have to ride it and just keep saying yes and keep going and even if you feel like you're in a rut, then change it. You know, if, if you're being blocked by something, then step aside from it and then move in a different direction. It's going to get you there. Like for me, I so I guess here, here's a way to explain this. When I was 11 years old, I said I was going to be a drummer. Like That's it. Like, you know, I thought I'm just going to be a drummer. That's my life. And then I got to school in Boston and then I learned, oh, arranging's really cool. Let me check that out. So I started to arrange and I started to do all this stuff and then I got to LA and then I learned about film scoring and I worked with a film composer. Basically what I'm saying is more things have added to my utility belt that I didn't know I was going to be a part of. And by having those interests keep going, it's brought me to places I never knew I'd get to and things that I I would have never in a million years thought that I was going to arrange a Star Wars percussion ensemble medley that John Williams had to approve. And like, I have an email saying that John Williams approved this. Like, just because I decided at Berkeley to say, let me try that arranging class. That's pretty cool. And so even if you end up somewhere where you don't think you were going to be, like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to do the exact thing you said when you were 11. You, You could, and you might, and that's great. But understand that, you know, Don't be disappointed if you don't get to the spot where you want to be. Uh, But if you want to get there, then find a way to get there. Like, you know, I have a day job, but I also have a night job. Like, I'm still gigging and I'm forcing myself to do this. I don't have to do this, but I want to do it. And so, you know, if you're stuck somewhere, like, don't feel like that's it. Like, find a way to make something more enjoyable for yourself. That's why I'm pushing myself through these videos because, like, Hey, if there isn't a band out there looking for an arranger to do crazy arrangements, then I'm going to make that band. I'm just going to do it myself because like, you know, you don't have to do it, but if you want to just do it, I hope Dang. that's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how I, I, I just, how have we not met? <laughs> like,
2: it's, like, yeah, dude. yeah, I don't know. The truth, it, I feel you. You know, it, it takes a while, you know, it takes a while to learn this stuff and to really analyze yeah, it yeah. and you know, over time and situations you you finally learn to let go of the anxiety and kind of learn this stuff from mm-hmm. doing these things. So I just, you know, over time you learn. A plus plus plus. this has been amazing. It, Thank it, you no for doubt being here, man. So how can people find yeah. you? Uh, you can find me at EricCalver.com, E-R-I-C-K-A-L-V is and victor E R. You can find me on Instagram at Ewick Dwums. So replace the R's with W's. Um, where you'll see my videos every week. I post them once a week. On your Instagram? On the Instagram. Got it. I post it on Facebook, too, but Instagram's a little bit easier. Um, you can see me at Upright Citizens Brigade, the Sunset location. That's Western and Sunset. I'm there most Fridays for Baby Wants Candy. That's the improvised musical. It's most Fridays at 7.30. Uh, and then I did a Netflix comedy special with Todd Glass. Uh, he was a stand-up comedian. You can find that on Netflix. It's called Act Happy. Right on. Right, awesome. like, right
1: on. What a great uh, end to the day. Uh, okay, so thanks again for being here. There's so many gems in here. And, thanks, man. I mean, I'm not even going to try and recap them because there were so many. That was really, really fantastic, and I think our listeners are way better for it. So for all you listening, go back and listen again. That was awesome. We'll catch you guys later.
0: Thanks for listening to Musician Mindset with Dave Johnstone and Jason Land. You can contact the show through Facebook and Instagram
2: at Musician Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes.